Hey everybody, welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, today is a special day, special episode. I am in a conversation with someone I've been following and reading for a long time, Dr. Michael Shermer, who is the publisher and editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. He's a presidential fellow at uh, Chapman University, a monthly columnist in the Scientific American, author of several best-selling books, most recently Heavens on Earth, which deals with um, ideas of the afterlife, really fascinating stuff. He's been um, featured all over the place in popular popular media. Michael, thanks so much for hey, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Spending some time. Um, I know a lot of people are familiar with your work. I don't. I don't know that as many people are familiar with your story, which is very interesting uh, because you are considered widely one of the leading skeptics and many would label you as an atheist um uh one of the the leading i'm I'm an atheist yeah there there you go Uh, you're one of the leading atheist voices out there and yet you um you had an evangelical christian uh experience and season of your life talk a little bit about that i did yeah the season it was my is my believer season yeah (laughs) seven years yeah i wasn't raised religious my parents were not religious they weren't anti-religious they just were nothing um but in high school in 1971 uh my friends several of my friends were kind of pressing the issue this was kind of the rise of the evangelical movement that the the non-denominational kind of the more more the jesus movement Hmm. you know the kind of hippy dippy Sure. Uh, you know, wear the gold chains, long hair with the guitars, and uh, you know, no, no, no affiliation with any church. Just, uh, just meeting to do Bible study sessions and things like that. So, anyway, I, I, I uh, went to some of these, and I went to the Presbyterian church with my, my best friend. His parents were Presbyterians, and then he said, "You should come." I'm like, well, "All right." So I went, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, I kinda liked his sister and you know, I thought, oh, this yeah, will be this will be go. fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh but the preacher um called uh, you know, he did the I forget what that's called now, but they you know, they have they call everybody up at the end that would like, like the to altar be, call. The, the altar call, yeah, deal, so, yeah. And so I went up and uh you know, I'd kinda done it the night before with my buddy at my parents' house. You know, he said, You should do this, you know, John three sixteen, yeah, and so forth. And I'm like, Okay, so I did. And then I went up to make it official, he, and you know, my, my buddy was like, you know, you don't have to go up. You've already done this. I said, I think I kind of feel like it wasn't official last night at my parents' house. I mean, this in a church, it seems more official. You yeah. know, so. Anyway, I did that, and and um, then I did these Bible study classes, courses, not courses, really, just sessions, informal. But then I went to Pepperdine University, which is mm. a Church of Christ school. I was uh, uh, matriculated as the first member of the first four-year graduating class at the Malibu campus, wow. which is now a famous university, Pepperdine. Uh, Church of Christ, you know, we went to chapel twice a week, required, took courses in the Old Testament, New Testament, the life of Jesus. Mm. I took a course in the writings of C.S. Lewis. We read everything C.S. Lewis wrote. Mm. And uh, I enjoyed the experience tremendously. I was, uh, you know, the one to door-to-door Amway with Bibles. I was a born-again. Wow. I was into it. I believed it totally, you know, emotionally, intellectually, and so on. And then... Uh, and then I went to graduate school, and I just sort of slowly lost my religion, as it were, for a number of reasons. Um, I was no longer in the bubble, the Christian bubble, where you're surrounded by everybody who believes it's just kind of the way of life, and everybody knows it's true. It's just kind of accepted. And in a different world, this was a, um, a state university, so secular, and uh, whether the people were religious or not that I was in graduate school with or the professors, I don't really know. Um 
because it wasn't really an issue. And this is sort of mid to late seventies. Uh, no one really cared this whole, you know, science and religion war and the new atheism and all this kind of stuff. This is pretty new. It wasn't really a thing back then. Mm. So, um, for a number of reasons, uh, I, you know, just ba- basically abandoned my faith. I just quit believing. Uh, it didn't seem probable to me that, uh, there was a God or that Jesus was the savior and all that. Plus the problem of evil I thought was, was pretty substantial. Um, I don't, I don't really think it's ever been really answered. I think it's, it's one of those issues that everybody has to struggle with that mm. is a believer, much like everybody has to struggle with the problem of free will in a deterministic universe. How do you get that? How do you feel volitional? And is it an illusion? And if it is, what does that mean? You know, some of these deep issues uh, are important. It's good to think about. So, uh, any case, um, uh, that and I took courses in anthropology, social psychology, sociology, and so on. And I could I could clearly see that um, that there were many many other religious beliefs, mm-hmm. and not not just the many branches of Christianity of which there are hundreds, um, uh, but but other religions, world religions, and they believed as strongly as I did. So I thought, hmm. You know, what are the chances I got the one right one and all these other people are wrong? Sure. It doesn't seem all that probable. And um, and then, um, yeah, you know, so I was wearing an ichthus, and I just thought, you know, I feel kind of hypocritical wearing this thing. Mm. Uh, so I just took it off, and I just, I didn't really tell anybody. I just stopped. I think my parents and family were relieved because I was always evangelizing, witnessing to them at, at family dinners, and it's, I think they were getting tired of that. It's a little irritating. When, <laughs> you know, you don't believe or you believe a different religion, and somebody's pounding you about Jesus. Yeah, constantly. so you were fervent. About oh yeah, it. yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'd go out on dates with women and, and talk to them about Jesus, and they're like, and this is back when everybody was just having sex, you know, it's like, who is this dude? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, anyway, um, yeah, and then throughout the 80s, uh, it wasn't really an issue. Um, the only thing I was interested in maybe was the kind of the evolution-creationism controversy, because hmm. it had kind of political implications for the teaching of science, science education, uh, but it wasn't until the 90s really late 90s, early 2000s, when atheism became started to become more prominent. Um, and I hadn't really, I didn't really have an official label. I was just kind of an atheist, non-theist, skeptic, agnostic, whatever. Sure. Um, we started the Skeptic Magazine in 1992. You know, Dawkins' book came out, The God Delusion, in 2006. You know, Sam Harris's book, Dan Dennett's book, Hitch's book, uh, God is Not Great. It was 2006, I think, or seven. So, you know, there was that cluster of books that kind of put the issue to the public forefront. And so now I, I get asked a lot, you know, to talk about these things. Even though I don't really define myself as an atheist, I don't know how you can define yourself by what you don't believe. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a meaningless activity. You just have, you know, what do you believe? Yeah. You know, you have to define yourself by what you what you do believe. So, Anyway, that's kind of the... Uh, yeah, if you can go back to those seven years, I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned the problems of um, suffering in the world, evil in the world, as well as free will, and a variety of other things. I think this is common, maybe, to a lot of experiences for Christians, especially growing up Christian. Um, and I'm curious for you, you know, in now in your work, you put out, there's all sorts of interesting, really critical observations of 
the biblical story critical in the sense that it's a critical posture toward sort of the classic evangelical Christian understanding. Did you read the Bible back then and ever think to yourself, this is odd or peculiar, it Um, kind of poses problems? I mean, a lot of it is, you know, historical and all this. And some of the classes I took at Pepperdine were kind of grindingly boring going through the Old Testament books and all the kings and a lot of them, you know, they're sort of tongue twisting names that don't stick in your brain very well. Uh, That ancient history stuff. Um, I was more interested in the ideas behind it. So for example, I'm a compatibilist. So I believe in free will, a sort of free will, a volition, a kind of volition that we have. So that somewhat congeals with the Christian worldview. I also believe that we have inner demons that we evolved uh, along with our better angels. So that also kind of matches the Christian worldview that we are sinners. We're born sinners. Hmm. I, I wouldn't use that language, but um, and you have a different version of why we're born sinners that I, I don't, I wouldn't accept. But uh, the whole original sin and all that. Um, but I, I, I do think there's there's ways to find common ground with the Christian worldview that has a scientific background uh, such that we can, you know, make common cause toward other goals to make society a better place and so on. So I, I, that part of my MO is to do that. Um, although, you know, if I'm forced to say if I think the Earth is 6,000 years old or 4.6 billion years old, one of those is wrong, <laughs> and we know why. And so I'm not going to, you know, stand by and just say, well, kumbaya, the, you know, the, everybody has their own truths. No. Some truths are more likely to be true and others false. And so some of the claims by religions are obviously false. Some are, you know, just not, not, you can't, not, not clear, debatable, say. Uh, well, that's what we're doing tonight here. Yeah, that's <laughs> Debating right. some of these these yeah. great issues. So we'll see. Yeah. You know, you once wrote um, this really interesting, thought-provoking line. You said, I'm a skeptic, not because I do not want to believe, but because I want to know. Yeah. And I think that, you know, people can make assumptions about the differentiation between the two, belief and, and knowing. Um, talk a little bit specifically about the differences as you understand them, specifically as it applies to, um, in our modern context today, the Christian faith, and yeah. when you see evangelical Christians today. Yeah, so what is truth? Um, so like, take something like so in the debate tonight, 700 seats in the auditorium, I guess. So, you know, if, so if I say the, my claim is there's 697 people here tonight, well, that, that, that we can determine as being true or false pretty objectively. We just count. Mm-hmm. Okay, that one's pretty simple. Um, you know, if I say um, that, you know, the greatest rock song of all time is Stairway to Heaven. Well, <laughs> you know, you can go, no, no, uh, you know, it's Freebird sure. <laughs> or whatever. Uh, you know, those are that's kind of more of an internal uh, subjective truth. Um, and, and so those are kind of two extreme versions of this internal versus external truth, objective versus subjective uh, so more to the point of what you're interested in, you know, if I say, did Jesus exist? I think probably so. I think you can make that case. Uh, here I lean on Bart Ehrman, the great um, uh, religious scholar mm-hmm. of the Bible at, um, uh, where is he, South, South Carolina, University of South Carolina, I think. North Carolina. North Carolina, think, that's yeah. right, Chapel, Chapel Hill. Who was also once an evangelical He was, Christian that's right, and, yeah, that's yeah, right, sure. yeah. Uh, you know, he makes a case against the, the people that argue Jesus maybe didn't even exist, that, right. that he probably probably did. So I accept his arguments. Was Jesus crucified? 
Uh, well, yeah, that that seems like a, a a likely occurrence, given that the Romans crucified everybody, sure. including common criminals. In fact, the two people crucified with Jesus were were petty thieves. So, yeah. okay, that seems likely. But if you go a step further, was Jesus resurrected? Oh boy. Okay, so now you're talking about an extraordinary claim. You know that that Jesus that someone named Jesus existed and was crucified. That's not extraordinary. That that would be not surprising. But that the fact that you know, roughly a hundred billion people have lived and died, and not one of them has ever come back to life after being really dead. Uh, what are the chances that this is the one? Okay, so you got to have extraordinary evidence for that extraordinary claim. Is the evidence extraordinary? In my opinion, no. Uh, it's it's far less than say claims about. Um, Pompeii being destroyed in a volcano. I mean, we have evidence for that. You can go there and see the bodies buried in the ash and so on. But that's that's kind of an ordinary claim that has pretty good ordinary evidence. The extraordinary claim that someone came back from the dead, um, you know, you have these eyewitnesses, sort of. You know, you had this you know, 500 people saw him afterwards. Well, no, there's one account that said there was 500 people that saw him. Uh, the, the Gospels differ on who was there, you know, when the tomb was empty. Uh, well, which one of those is accurate? Why do the details differ? Okay, maybe, you know, story people have different memories, fine. But, you know, those accounts were written down decades at the earliest, decades after the fact. We know how unreliable memory is. Now, if you want to hook the whole thing to God, God inspired the Bible and wrote it, you know, through somebody else's hand, well, then we're not talking science and evidence anymore. We're talking miracle, you know. So, it, but, but if you want to just keep it on the level of can you prove it, I would say uh, that skepticism of that claim would be more appropriate than believing it. And then finally, if we go one step further, Jesus died for your sins. Now that would just that would be more of a kind of a theological dogma doctrine. I don't know how you'd ever prove that. I mean, what does that even mean to prove that? Um, I mean, clearly, um, for example, Jews who believe the same God that you believe in, even believe in the same book you believe in, at least the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they even believe that the Messiah is coming, at least some Jews do. It's just that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Okay, uh, 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 why don't they accept those arguments for Jesus' re uh, resurrection and that he died for your sins? And it's not like they don't know the arguments or they're just not smart enough or you know they haven't thought it through carefully enough. You know, I mean, these are learned scholarly rabbis who know as much about the Bible as any evangelical, and they don't accept the claims. Why not? Why is there not a consensus if this was so obviously true? And the reason I, I believe is that because it's not a thing that you can prove. It's an article of faith. You just you accept it or you don't. Uh, so, for example, I had uh, in my podcast, the Science Salon podcast, um, uh, Ken Miller, who is the, one of the greatest biologists today, testified in the Dover trial against the intelligent design creationists. Himself is a Christian. He has accepted Jesus as his Savior. He believes everything you believe. He's Catholic. But anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I asked him, why do you believe this? I went through the same arguments I just went through with you. This is my faith tradition. I was raised Catholic. It's what I believe. It, full stop. Like okay, and you know that's pretty much the end hmm. of the conversation in that regard. I don't. There's nothing more to press him on. Like you know, yeah, but what about this or what about that? You know, and um, and, and so that kind of gets at a, a different way of coming at claims, and it shows you the subjectivity of a lot of our m more religious-based claims. That at some point, you know, you're either making the leap of faith or you're not because of some emotional 
reason or you were raised that way. It works for you. It's pragmatically true. Uh, makes you feel better. You know, these are all reasons people believe things. For example, like free will. I mean, I can't prove I'm a compatibilist. So technically, you, you, how, how can you have free, true free will in a deterministic universe? Well, technically you can't. If you, what you mean by those words is how they're commonly used, you can't. But, and yet 60% of all professional philosophers label themselves as compatibilists. They believe there is something like human volition and free will. That's the majority. So somehow or another, people live with the apparent incompatibility. So free will may be one of these useful fictions we just hold or maintain because it works. So I'm willing to grant that to my Christian friends. Yeah, okay, fine. If that works for you, it doesn't work for me. I'm not convinced. I don't need it. I wasn't raised that way. It's not part of my faith tradition other than my seven-year block there. Yeah. So, I, you know, I... Uh, you know, I just, uh, there's nothing to be gained in it for me. Yeah. I don't feel I miss anything. So hmm. You mentioned, you know, the, you, when you were telling the story of Jesus, you talked about, you know, you, you referenced Bart Ehrman and you said, Hey, you know, I, I think that, yeah, sure. Jesus was a real person. He existed, historical figure. That's, you know, fine enough. Um, he was crucified. Sure. The Romans crucified lots of people, common criminals, the two people next to him, that that's all well and good as well. And then when you got to the resurrection, you mentioned, you know, that's an extraordinary claim, yeah. which it certainly is compared to the claim that there was a man named Jesus from a town called Nazareth, not <laughs> right. extraordinary. Um, and that this man was crucified on a cross, Roman cross, not, you know, maybe a little more extraordinary than the fact that he was alive, but still not out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And you said, you know, the claim of the resurrection is, is extraordinary, which it certainly is. And then you said, because it is extraordinary, then it requires, now I'm putting words in your mouth. I don't think you said requires, but you tacked onto it, then it, it requires a sort of extraordinary, and you didn't say proof, but extraordinary well, so evidence. Uh, is there a, de I guess the what I'm... It's the principle of proportionality. We should proportion... Yeah, right. We should proportion our confidence in our claims and beliefs according to the evidence. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, the, the, uh, Carl Sagan's famous line that he didn't actually say, but quotes gravitate up to the most famous person who ever said them. <laughs> extraordinary claims yeah. require extraordinary evidence. Extraordinary mm. claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm. So if you have an ordinary claim, like uh, I saw a gorilla in the woods, Okay, that's entirely possible. Maybe it was a bear, but in any case, it could be a gorilla, escaped from the zoo. But if you say, you know, I saw a Bigfoot or I saw an alien spaceship. Mm -hmm. Wow, an alien spaceship or a Bigfoot, that would be extraordinary because we don't have any evidence that those exist anywhere. Mm. So the idea that you saw them, we, we can't just go, yeah, yeah, it's probably true, escape from the zoo. No. <laughs> right. You, you got to have something more than, you know, grainy videos and fuzzy photographs and, and anecdotes about spooky things that go bump in the night. You know, we need a tangible body, the actual spaceship or the alien or the Bigfoot that you can examine, you can examine, that I can point to and go there. See that? Now, in science, we, we sort of work toward this convergence of evidence toward a single conclusion. Now, some sciences, this, you know, we haven't achieved this yet, like explaining consciousness, for example. There's several different theories about this. Um, but in something like climate change, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't at all clear that global warming was real and human caused. But by, you know, the mid-2000s or so, by 2010, certainly, there was a convergence of evidence from multiple lines of inquiry that we can get a consensus. 
Now, consensus is not a vote. It's not a democracy where you know, all the climate scientists meet uh, and, and, and everybody puts their hand up or not, uh, and we count. No, this is, this is a consensus of a different sort, that uh, different scientists in different fields, publishing in different journals, studying different things, all come to the same conclusion. That gives us a high degree of confidence that this extraordinary claim that we are able to affect the uh, you know long-term climate, you know that that would be pretty unusual. But it, it does appear to be true. Um, now, not all so you get this 97% figure. Uh, you know that that's that's a high degree of confidence the, that the Big Bang happened, that evolution happened, the germ theory of disease, that HIV causes AIDS, that you know vaccines do not cause autism. You know, there's a lot of things we're pretty confident in. Others we're not so confident. Now, in my opinion, religion doesn't have this kind of um, convergence toward a single conclusion across different faiths. Again, as I said, you know, most Christians accept Jesus' resurrection, or else you wouldn't be a Christian, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you might as well just be Jewish or sure. maybe Muslim or something like that. I was going to say Mormon, but I, I think Mormons do accept Jesus as their Savior. They just tack on Joseph Smith. Additional stuff, yeah. <laughs> Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Uh, I saw a story recently. They they changed their name. They don't want to use the name yeah, Mormon anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, maybe because of that uh, musical, the Book of Mormon. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I think these are different categories. Um, that's why I think religion's different than science. Mm-hmm. Um, by definition, it's doing something different, and you can certainly make arguments, which Frank Turek tonight will make. You know, first cause, prime mover, cosmological argument, the fine tune art. He'll go through all these. Um, you know, those work if you already believe. If you're, you know, if you're, you're committed to this position, you're like, I really want reasons to believe. I want logical arguments to back my faith. Yes, you know, people do that. But that's not going to get you, you know, it's not going to get everybody else on board with you. You're not going to go to the Muslims. There's a billion Muslims mm-hmm. that are as confident as you are that they're the ones going to heaven. Mm-hmm. And you... By accepting Jesus as your Savior, you are going to hell. You made the wrong choice, buddy. And they believe that. Uh, And so how could we convince them otherwise? And it's not like there's anything you can point to and go, no, 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 no. Look, look, you've misread the Quran. Here's what it really means. Uh, you know, or and, and point to it like a climate scientist would go. Look, here's my data set showing the ice core data or whatever. It's really true. The Earth is getting warmer, and we're the cause. Here's why I think so. And you can look at the same data set. A Muslim's not going to look at the uh, the Gospels and go, "Oh, you're right." Uh, what was I thinking? You know, not, occasionally this happens, you know, but not. You know, there's Jews for Jesus and and so on. But they're they're you know few in number. Yeah, I'm curious when you say that you know all religions, in essence, are born out of a perspective. Maybe I'm paraphrasing here. So um, when a Christian apologist says X, Y, and Z to sort of explain, and you say for a Christian, you know, it makes sense if you're working from the position that you already hold, and now those views sort of support that position. For you as a scientist, um, as a well-respected one, what gives you the confidence, and maybe this is a mechanical question, or maybe it's not, I'm not sure, but what gives you the confidence that when you when you view things from the scientific lens, you're not doing that. There that there isn't some sort of beginning posture or perspective yeah. or opinion. Yeah. So two things on that. One, science is not a th- not a belief system like religion. So, uh, science and reason are just tools we use to try to answer questions. So it's not a commitment to any particular set of dogmas or, or anything like that. Other than part two, 
um, that we have uh, what's called the null hypothesis. That is sometimes called the burden of proof argument. The, the null hypothesis in science is that your hypothesis, we assume your hypothesis is not true until proven otherwise. So if you claim, for example, I think vaccines cause autism. And, you know, this was a thing in, in the late 90s when this guy published this article in, in a British medical journal saying he, he thinks it does. Uh, well, that, that was never corroborated. In fact, the article was uh, pulled from the journal, uh, determined to be fraudulent, and so on. And yet still lots of people think there's, there's something true to this. It's not true. And the burden of proof is not on me to show that vaccines do not cause autism. It's on the proof, burden of proof is on you. Uh, to prove that it does, so mm-hmm. the, um, so the null hypothesis in science is that the, the null that that your your hypothesis is not true. Now this is the case in most science. Most hypotheses that scientists come up with are not true. Uh, people just you know they're spitballing away in the lab there. Let's try this. Maybe it's that. Who knows? Blah blah blah. And they throw stuff out and then they run experiments and they see if their uh, if their colleagues find the same results and if they don't. It's a bad sign for your hypothesis. If they do, pushes it a little further up the confidence scale. Um, you know that's kind of how it, it, it works in that case. And you know, when, at some point tonight, we'll probably hit an epistemological wall. You know, there had to be a, a first cause. Well, then what caused God? Well, you know, then then we'll play some semantic games. At some at some point, we hit a wall where nobody knows what there was before there was a beginning of our universe, or what what caused God, and, and so on. Um, there we have to have some epistemological humility that there's a lot we don't know. And at this point, it's okay to just say, in science anyway, I don't know. Hmm. What's the origins of, you know, not just the, or, the origins of life and what is the explanation for consciousness? Not the neural correlates of consciousness. We're getting a pretty good handle on that. But, but the qualitative, what's called the hard problem of consciousness, the qualitative experience of redness or sunsets or music or whatever— you know, first of all, I can't know what yours is like. It's the problem of other minds. Right. I can't get inside your head. My little homunculus can't leap. Like, out are of my you skull. when you see red? Are you seeing what I'm the, seeing? The, the, that age right. old question, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Now, my solution to that is that is the Copernican principle: is that I'm not special. You know, my neural anatomy is pretty similar to yours. Our brains use the same neural chemistry. If I'm seeing red or experiencing a musical score or whatever, it's a pretty good chance you have the same experience as me. And I'm not the only one walking around that's conscious, and every other human on Earth is a zombie where the lights are out. Uh, that that would be that would be against the Copernican principle. I'm mm-hmm. not special, and uh, so I think that, that that gets us around that naughty issue. Um, but 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 my larger point was that there there are uh, there are some conceptual problems. I think maybe free will. And consciousness are two of these what are called mysterian mysteries that, that can never be explained. They're, they're, concept, they're conceived in a way that can't ever be explained, like free will and determinism is one. God might be one of those. Now, I, I'm, I'm, I go back and forth on this, but one aspect of it, if God is outside of space and time, it's a, it's a supernatural entity, well, then how, how would you ever know? The features or characteristics of this entity, because we're natural beings locked in space and time, uh, three-dimensional. You know, we are three-dimensional entities. How can you know this? Uh, you can't unless God reaches in to our world and stirs the particles in some way. And, and if so, then that must be measurable. So, like you know, prayer and healing or something like that. Okay, let's run that experiment. But if it's, it's a, but if you fall back on yeah, but God is outside of space and time. Okay, then you know we're we're at the end of the 
end of the, we've hit the wall. <laughs> sure. I can't know what's outside of space and time. Right, right. I'm curious, you, you mentioned um, the, the ability of science to take the humble posture of being able to say, I don't know, because of the mechanism of science itself is that it, it needs to measure. Um, do you sense, and this is more a personal question just in your work uh, in, in um, the past few decades as, as you've sort of interacted quite a bit in debate format and in other formats with evangelical Christians. I'm curious, what's your sense when you think about Christians today? Do you come across many of them who share that posture as a Christian? Yes, yeah, certainly there are things we can't know even as Christians. Or do you sense that that is sort of an oppo- a point of opposition between science and evangelical, at least Christianity? Maybe both. Maybe both. Um... It, it sort of depends on who I'm talking to. I mean, if I'm debating Frank Turek, he's not going to stand up on stage and say, you know, I don't really know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to speak with great confidence because that's what he's paid to do. That's his sure. job. Uh, but I, I do think that but probably most Christians have doubts um, and, and probably grave doubts. I don't know how they couldn't. And uh, and that's sort of the point of faith, isn't it? That even if you doubt, you should you, you should push on. Um, because that's what we do. That's part of our, you know, faith tradition. And, uh, you know, another observation I made uh, thinking about recently is, um, you know, in in my latest book talking about uh, death and dying and Mm -hmm. the the afterlife and so on, uh, it seems to me that people who are religious, who say that they absolutely believe in an afterlife and who say something like, well, I'm going to see my beloved again in the next life, they grieve just as much as anybody um, mm. when they lose their uh, loved ones. Are, are they not that confident uh, that they will see them again, and this is why they grieve so much? Or is there some other reason? I don't have an answer to this question, by the way, but uh, I suspect that everybody doubts a little bit. You might say, I'm 100% convinced there's a heaven and I'm going. And, and by the way, there's an op- uh, optimism bias there where more people believe in heaven than hell <laughs> and that they're going to the good place, mm. <laughs> of course. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's always a level of doubt like, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's not actually true. And therefore, I'm really going to miss this person. You know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but I think in general, one of the features of religious faith is to is to not express quite as much doubt, say, as, as science insist that we should it, now i should be careful in saying this scientists themselves may not exhibit this um objective uh standard we would like to hold that is it's okay to say i don't know and show doubt scientists are human they, and they're just as committed to their hypotheses or theories as anybody else in any other walk of life and they will be subject to the confirmation bias and the hindsight bias and so on and they will convince themselves that they're right even in the teeth of counter evidence that their colleagues will show them and sometimes they go to their grave not admitting that they were wrong <laughs> so i'm not talking about scientists i'm just talking about the process of science itself says that it, you know you really got to be super careful that you've not fallen for uh, these fallacies, cognitive biases and fallacies, because, as Feynman said, you are the easiest person to fool. And uh, and so, but, but but so but but if you don't, it's okay. Somebody else will figure it out. Because mm-hmm. so, in part, um, the competitive marketplace of ideas is in the ideal of science. It also extrapolates to uh, politics. The classroom, the boardroom, all of society. We need a 
heterodox of ideas. We need a diversity of ideas. We need a competition, a free marketplace of ideas for us to figure out what's correct uh, because all of us are, are biased like this. So the, the more homogeneous a group, the more likely the entire group is going to be wrong. Mm. You need somebody who's willing to stand up and say, no, I think we're wrong. I think we're going in the wrong direction. Let's try something else. And not have in place a system where the, where the dissenter is punished. You know, this is why uh, dictators want to control theocrats and autocrats and dictators want to control the press and they want to control dissenters and punish them like in North Korea, because that's how people lose their power. And when the, when the little boy says the emperor has no clothes, so you have to have that. So my concern about some religions anyway, is that they become too homogeneous and uh, you got to allow for dissenters To, to their credit. The Christian church has went through the enlightenment and they don't, burn witches anymore. They don't torture heretics and lapsed heretics. Uh, Islam, unfortunately, has not gone through the Enlightenment, and they're not quite so liberal in that regard. Hmm. Do you, the, the last thing you just said, do you sense in your interactions with Christians um, throughout the years, and, and currently especially, do you sense that there is a sort of and I don't, you know, I know you don't live in the evangelical Christian world, but in your um, minimal interactions, do you sense that there is a broadening of of that? That there is the ability to um, doubt openly, ask questions, uh, and that the dissenter—it's um, a harsh word—but you know, somebody who stands up and says, "Wait, let's reconsider." Um, whether it's a matter of tremendous orthodoxy or a you know secondary issue, do you sense that there's a broadening of that, or that there's a space mm. uh, amongst evangelical Christians? Certainly, uh, it depends again who I'm talking to and how I'm talking to them. So I'm talking to you guys now, and you, you certainly seem as reasonable and rational as, as anyone I know. Um, but, but if I confronted you in a different format where we're debating, then you're you're going to put up the walls, and so am I. You know, so it depends on how it's done. Or if we throw politics into the mix, right? You know, then you know, you, you know people vote for their team or, or or whatever, and it becomes more polarizing. I'm worried about this in the last five years or so, um, in the last ten years certainly, that uh, America's become much more politically polarized, and and the, and religion gets tugged along with that. Uh, I was quite surprised to see 81 percent of evangelicals voted for Trump. Uh, who is has to be the least evangelical religious Christian ever since mm. maybe the deist Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, I mean, if if Obama had been caught paying off uh, a prostitute or a, a porn star and a Playboy bunny, I mean, you guys would have been all over him. Mm. And yet Trump gets a pass. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's staggering to me that, you know, the, 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 the Christian right, who's supposed to be the party or the part of the party, that's the that believes in principles and morals and values, has just thrown him out the window. Well, whatever, he's our guy. That shows you that uh, religion may not ha- have as strong a, a a hold on politics as maybe in the '80s with the moral majority sure. and uh, Jerry Falwell and his crew that you know glommed onto Reagan and 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 the Bushes. That may have changed now. Hmm. Um. When you, you know, most of our audience, the overwhelming majority of our audience who listen to this podcast are 
followers of Jesus, Christians, they would categorize themselves as such. And so just thinking about them and, um, you know, being who you are, if you could encourage them as, um, at, not as allies per se, but as fellow human beings, you know, yeah. who are on the journey. And I think the shared reality that is universal to all of us is that everyone is searching for meaning and for purpose and for significance. Um, all people in this life and many in the next. If you could just speak to them as fellow humans who are on that journey of searching, really, um, what would you say? What what are some what are some practical things from your position that you would say as a Christian, think about this or do this to make yep. your faith journey more yep. robust wherever that leads you? Well, I think to start that uh, whether there's a God or not, or an afterlife or not, uh, particularly on that latter one, this is the point of my book, Heavens on Earth. At the end, whether there's an afterlife or not, we don't live in the afterlife, we live in this life. Mm. Whether there's a hereafter or not is kind of irrelevant because we live in the here and now, and this is where it counts. What you do matters now, here, um, regardless of the reward or not afterwards. And isn't that a higher moral value? to be good for goodness sake, whether there's a God rewarding that or acknowledging that or even knowing about it. Um, and, uh, and that, uh, I just remind Christians, you know, people have been saying the end is near for a long time and it's, we keep grinding along. <laughs> and so again, the Copernican principle, we're not special. The chances of our generation being the one where Jesus returns and all that stuff, very, very unlikely. Even if it's true that Jesus is going to return, the chances that we're the generation that it's going to happen in is very low, especially if you have some historical perspective and you realize that every generation for the last 2,000 years has said, we're the one. So the chances that you are the ones are very unlikely. So shouldn't we work toward having a more just and fair society for more people in more places? And shouldn't we work to have... Um, you know, more prosperity and more liberties and freedoms and rights for more people. I mean, that's the kind of thing we should work for uh, anyway, no matter what, that secularists, humanists, Christians, Jews, Muslims, everybody should be working toward that end. I think most Christians I know are, are pretty much on board with that. They've, they've been tugged along by the secular rights movements slowly, but getting there civil rights, women's rights, now gay rights. Um, I think uh, my observation that most Christians, uh, very few Christians any, any more now, even just two years, three years after the fact, care about gay marriage. Yeah, whatever, dude, give them, you know, let them get married. I mean, uh, you, you know, I think that's about the fastest moral revolution I've ever seen. Um, and so that's a sign that um, even, even doctrinaire... Christians devoted to a particular set of beliefs that they think are in stone, in fact, are not in stone. They can be changed. They can be shifted. Things like attitudes toward uh, homosexuality, for example. And uh, my latest column in Scientific American just came out on abortion. Here I'm trying to take the moral element out of it because it's so divisive um, and it's so polarizing. Um, what is the problem? The problem is unwanted pregnancies. Okay, if we didn't have unwanted pregnancies, there wouldn't be an abortion problem. Okay, so this is a social, kind of like a technological engineering problem, is social engineering problem. How can we get women to not get pregnant when they don't want to? 
Okay, so well, let's look at the. So anyway, I cite studies on this, showing what works, what doesn't work. Uh, unfortunately, for, for for your side, abstinence-only programs don't work. Um, that you know, people uh, redefine what they're doing when they're messing around in the bedroom, and they, well, this isn't really sex, and they end up getting pregnant. They don't use birth control, so birth control technologies access to birth control technologies, education uh, of women, particularly in p- political and economic empowerment of women. And by the way, all of those factors also drive population numbers down. The rate of population increase goes down when you do this. So the overpopulation problem that the left has been more obsessed with since the 60s has also been solved largely by education, economic empowerment, and so on. And a lot of these values Christians already embrace. For example, free market economics, and the spread of democracy around the world. These things are happening. And uh, so I think those are the kind of things we can find common ground on. You know, I I mean, I'm pro-choice technically if you want to use it, but that term, but I don't think abortion is, I don't like abortions. I wouldn't do it. I'm against it personally. I I, I only slightly favor the rights of a mother versus the rights of her unborn fetus. But barely, you know, and, and, and when you abort a fetus, you are killing a, a human being. You are. It's not a person legally, uh, but it is a human life that should be acknowledged uh, in the same way that, that conservatives and Christians believe in the death penalty or just war. You guys think it's perfectly OK to kill people if it's justified. Kill civilians in Iraq, perfectly justified. Innocent civilians, they have to die because we got to get the bad guy. You've already agreed to that, and you've already agreed that it's okay for the government to um, uh, kill, put to death uh, uh, prisoners on death row. So if now you have a justification for that, well, okay. Uh, so apparently we agree that it's okay to kill people under certain conditions. So with abortion, I'm just saying let's see if we can find common ground and treat it as a problem to be solved. In fact, I think most moral problems are actually just social problems to be solved. Crime, homicide, war. These are all socially technological technical problems we can solve. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's kind of my my more ecumenical, I guess, broad-based answer. Sure. Uh, that these are things we should work on together. You know, we're sitting here at uh, 5.15 p.m. on a Friday afternoon in one of the offices of a large evangelical Christian church in the Bay Area, and this is not the first time you've done this. You're going to be in a debate at a Christian church, and um, it's one of the things I've personally uh, appreciated about you is that you're um, more than willing. You're happy to jump in and have um, also a, a very civil dialogue about ideas. And um, so for, for those who are listening, uh, I, I, one of the things that, that I think is so important to us here at the Regeneration Project, one of the reasons why this whole thing was birthed was um, the belief and the, the passion to help infuse new generations with thoughtfulness and care in terms of their engagement of faith and their following of Jesus. And so, uh, oddly enough, I would say, Michael, thank you for provoking, you know, <laughs> and um, provocateurs, I think, are so important because they help us, they force us really to think and to um, to sharpen why it is we believe and to question and to, um, to confront even at times. So uh, really appreciate your work, really appreciate your time here. Tell, tell folks, um, who are interested maybe even in, in checking out some of the work that you do. Where can they find oh, you skeptic. online? Skeptic.com is my webpage for the magazine in the Skeptic Society. Skeptic.com, michaelshermer.com, 
on Amazon and um, it has all my books, of course, and fine bookstores everywhere. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what few brick-and-mortar stores yeah, are well, left. They're coming back. They're coming back. A little bit, so. yes. Uh, <laughs> I support uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores. I like to go into Me them. Me too, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs>